The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the Eighth Doctor audio story, Invaders from Mars. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, Remember, folks, this is a Big Finish audio production. You can find all of the Eighth Doctor audio stories at BigFinish.com. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, I want to encourage you to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. That allows you to write a review and to rate and review the show for us. That helps us get the show in front of more people and share the podcast with your friends, especially those who are into Doctor Who, especially. (laughs) That helps us grow this community and uh, helps us in the long run. I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network that I'm sure you'll enjoy called The Secrets of Star Wars. That's a show where Father Andrew Kinstetter and a panel of Star Wars fans talk about everything about Star Wars, including all the new shows that are coming out and the, any new movies that are coming in the future. There's a lot going on in Star Wars, and there's lots to talk about, especially from a Catholic perspective. And there's, sometimes they have uh, guests on the show from the Star Wars uh, uh, casts of various shows. They've had uh, a cast member from Star Wars Rebels on, so that's uh, it's a lot of fun. Check it out wherever you find fine podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. But as I mentioned, we're this time on The Secrets of Doctor Who, we're talking about this audio play called Invaders from Mars, featuring the Eighth Doctor. Jimmy, can you give us a recap of this one? It's Halloween 1938, and the Eighth Doctor and Charlie Pollard land in New York City, where Orson Welles' famous War of the Worlds broadcast is happening. And, just like every time a sci-fi story involves this broadcast, a real alien invasion is happening. Only it isn't Martians, it's a race of bat-like aliens called the Later Placker. A month ago, the Later Placker sent a single member of their species to Earth to breed by splitting in half, creating monstrous offspring to scare everybody. Now, two more Later Placker have arrived to shake down the human race as part of a cosmic protection racket. The deal is that we provide valuables, and they provide protection from the dangerous monsters invading our planet. Only the deal goes sideways because there are lots of other characters running around, including the Central Intelligence Agency, Russian and German spies, mobsters who have found the alien technology, an opportunistic Nazi sympathizer who only wants to rule the world, and a Russian scientist who has just invented the atomic bomb using later placard technology. In the end, the Doctor and Orson Welles do a special broadcast of War of the Worlds to convince the later placard that a real alien invasion is happening, and Earth is being invaded by famous Martian warriors who are more than a match for the later placard, so they decide to get off the planet pronto. But the Russian scientist and the opportunistic Nazi sympathizer are aboard their ship, and the Russian scientist decides that saving the Earth from the later placard would be a good use of his newfangled atomic bomb. So, once they get into orbit, they really don't get that far. The (laughs) end. (laughs) All right. So, yes, it's a, what if War of the Worlds actually was was an uh, alien invasion, which you're right. I mean, I've seen so many 
stories set in Halloween 1938 when that act, when that broadcast actually happened, and that was oh, what if they really came? Or that assume that it really happened after the fact, like uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Right, right. Oh, Buckaroo Banzai. That takes me back. Uh, so. Oh, by the way, before before we move on, I wanted yep. to mention. Now you mentioned now this is a Big Finish play, yep, and you can buy it from Big Finish, and it's it's an older one. It's from two thousand two, so it's cheap. Mm-hmm. But you can also listen to it for free at uh, the TARDIS Wikia page for this story. And uh, a lot of Big Finish are available on Spotify. I'm not sure if this particular one is, but if I you would have imagine, a, yeah, if you have a Spotify, you can also get a lot of Big Finish there as well. So yeah, you don't have to pay to to listen to this one. Uh, so this is written by Mark Gatiss, who yeah. is a well-known actor and who's been done a lot, of, written a lot of uh, uh, TV Doctor Who, and and his historical nostalgia is firmly on display in this <laughs> with lashings of old-time radio play. In fact, I love the fact that they use the old-time radio play musical stingers throughout, so it sounds mm-hmm. like a like like an old-time radio play. So that that was fun, um, and he likes to bring in historical figures like or actual Orson Welles, uh, not the actual Orson Welles, but, but the character playing the, the real person, Orson Welles. And there's another character who is a his, historical figure. Um, John Houseman is another mm-hmm. historical right. figure that, that was real. Uh, and uh, I should also point another behind the scenes that a couple of characters are played by Simon Pegg, the, yes. the British actor. He's a mobster with, no, with half a nose. <laughs> That's right, right. And uh, although, if you didn't know it was Simon Pegg, I don't think you'd p- pick it up because he's he's got an American accent in this well, one, and it was he, pretty. He has a dodgy kind of sort of gangster accent, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, there are lots of dodgy accents here. There are dodgy Brooklyn accents, uh-huh. dodgy Russian accents, lots of dodgy accents all around. Yes, very very broad uh, TV style accents. Um, one thing I have to point out is a, a, an historical anachronism or or incorrect thing. The CIA did not exist in 1938. <laughs> I know, I know. There's uh, the CIA did not exist for another like decade. Uh, well, almost a decade. Yeah, yeah. It, it was created in 1947 mm. during the presidency of Harry Truman. So after World War II, after the dropping of the atomic bomb, I read one history of the CIA. The first, if I remember correctly, the first line of the book, mm-hmm. you know, a history of the CIA. I believe it's Legacy of Ashes. It doesn't have a very positive view of the history of the CIA. <laughs> That's by that title, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it portrays them as really incompetent. Mm. But the opening line is, Harry Truman just wanted a newspaper. <laughs> and, and, and that was the basic yeah. idea of the CIA. He, wanted, he didn't want them doing covert ops. He just wanted a collection of daily news of intelligence information that would be relevant for his decision-making. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, that's they're, they're, they're supposed to be a central in, you know, information collection agency. Uh, my, how they have expanded beyond their mission. <laughs> Government yeah. creep. Um, uh, another bit of historical inaccuracy in this uh, is somewhat more forgivable, mm-hmm. is the extent of the panic after the War of the Worlds broadcast. Because whenever you hear the War of the Worlds broadcast discussed, it's like, it put the nation in a panic, and they had to do this emergency reassurance that this is just fiction and stuff. And it was actually obvious to everybody, almost, that they were listening to a radio play. Right. I mean, War of the Worlds was a famous book by Orson Welles, and people did not 
the vast majority of people did not really think an alien invasion was happening. That's a myth. Now, there were some, maybe, who thought that, and they did hold a press conference like the next day to, to, to tell everybody to settle down, but this appears to have significantly been a publicity stunt, uh, rather yeah. than at, there, there wasn't a real, actual, sizable panic of any mm-hmm. kind, but Orson Welles was a great promoter. <laughs> And and promoting yourself by pretending there was a big panic is yes. something that would attract attention. Yeah. You know, the, the I mean, that sort of thing still happens. I mean, there are these uh, viral hoaxes that go out there on social media, and there's a subset of people who believe them. I mean, we, we have the, uh, the uh, uh, what is it, the um, stereotypical aunt <laughs> or, or mom who writes you a text message or sends you know sends you a message you know all, all agog about this horrible thing that's happening this in, we call it disinformation or you know just a viral hoax or whatever these days but i mean this is kind of one of the original mass media hoaxes that tricked some people like you said but uh, not yeah, maybe not everyone maybe mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i i can believe that some people believed it um so the so meanwhile we have the doctor and Charlie Pollard still traveling together. They're still trying to get to Singapore in 1930, uh, which was the, been the whole thing ever since the R101. And uh, but they got redirected. They're close to New York City in 1938, so they're they're closer than they have been. And they end up in this alley where they find a body of this uh, private eye. This you know this very you know uh, stereotypical New York City private eye in the 1930s uh, named Halliday who's been just been murdered by these two gangster types. Um Ellis with a radiation weapon. With right, with a with a an alien ray gun, uh, essentially. And uh and that uh, obviously the doctor recognizes the signs of alien technology and that's what draws him into this story. And he ends up pretending to be uh Halliday. The, Halliday. Yeah. Which is interesting and kind of alarms Charlie like what are you doing? Like why are you pretending to be this guy? And he adopts, the doctor adopts this over-the-top, hard-boiled lingo mm-hmm. as he's pretending to be the detective. And Charlie is is like, what are you talking about? Nobody talks this way. <laughs> right, right. Uh, apparently, he's always wanted to be a private eye, or, or always wanted at least to pretend to be a private eye. And they end up getting hired by uh, the, a, the femme fatale. Like, again, this is just classic Raymond Chandler-type you know, film noir stuff. Uh, the femme fatale who enters Halliday's office, and her name is Glory B, uh, which is just <laughs> yeah, it's a little James Bondish name yeah. there. Yeah, James Bondish, or you know the the Chandler, yeah. Raymond Chandler, sort of thing. Um, now, but she wants her her like father or uncle, I forget uncle. which, found. Yeah, and and it turns out she's actually a Soviet spy. Right. So there may be a reason she has a ridiculous name. Yes, yes. It's her cover name, which, yeah, great job uh, on the cover name. <laughs> Meanwhile, that mob boss, played by Simon Pegg, uh, whose name is Don Cheney, which is kind of a funny uh, thing. Sounds like Lon Chaney. Um, he, he has captured the original later plackers who had landed some time ago and uh, who were who uh, laying eggs, by the way, <laughs> which they didn't realize. And he's taken their weapons I, I and technology. Don't, I don't recall it was eggs. It, I, it was a single later placker, and it was dividing by mito- by mitosis. Oh, was it? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. It, uh, that's one thing I missed. And uh, in fact, I want to talk a bit about that in a second about me missing stuff. But um, he's taken their weapons, 
he's keeping them in the basement. He feeds his enemies to to the later placard once or twice. Mm-hmm. That's a very you know a job of the hut ish. <laughs> yeah, it's it, one of our cliffhangers. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was pretty pretty gruesome in parts. So I mean, it's, it's there's uh, some jeopardy uh, in this. It's, they don't hold back on that. So what I was wanted to say was um. Like this episode of the Eighth Doctor story, the previous Eighth Doctor story we listened to, I find I found it somewhat confusing, mm-hmm. especially near the beginning. Once we get to the end, things start to settle out, but it's it was kind of hard yeah. to follow. And this is something that you encounter with some of these uh, early, especially early Big Finish audio plays, because this is from two thousand two. Mm-hmm. And the line was still new, and they had just begun doing this. They weren't as practiced at it as they are now. What I find is with these early Big Finish stories, they some of them are brilliant. I mean, they do amazing things. That mm-hmm. like we did uh, the Eighth Doctor and Charlie story, uh, the Chimes at Midnight, mm-hmm. which is actually the next story after this in sequence. But we did it early because it's a Christmas story, and that one is just brilliant. And there are others that are absolutely brilliant, but. One of the things they try to do with these big finish plays is model the format of the TV show. So if they're in an era where like you had four 25-minute episodes on television, they'll try to give us four 25-minute audio episodes. And they even use the same theme music that the show was using at the time. So you have the same, for whoever the doctor is, you have that doctor's theme music being used. And in in some ways, it, that what they do is nice, but in other ways, I think it hurts them in some of these early plays. Because now, in the case of the Eighth Doctor, he didn't have an episodic adventure on television. He had a single TV movie that was like 90 minutes. And they don't do that. Instead, they default to like the format that Sylvester McCoy and several previous Doctors had used, which was four 25-minute episodes. And on television, when you have four 25-minute episodes, they tend to have the first episode is just introducing you to the setting, and then you maybe have the monster reveal at the end of the first episode. Mm. And then in the second episode, you advance the action a little bit further, but it really doesn't get going full steam until parts three and four. And they're mirroring that in the, some of these early audio plays. And, um, and the problem is, you know, there was always a little bit of personally, I mean, you can speak for yourself, Dom, but personally, I would always find episodes one and two of television less interesting than episodes three and four. And I find that's the case here, but even more so because I don't have any visuals to carry the story. It has to be carried purely in audio. And that makes it harder to figure out what's going on, and it makes it less interesting. Now, I I really liked, I and I had the same experience with this one, I found episodes one and two to be confusing. There, Mark Gatiss is trying to carry it by atmosphere, by, you know, just doing, this is the most 1938 New York, 1938 New York has ever been. Um, and, you know, I... I appreciate the nostalgia and I appreciate his efforts in that regard, but without the visuals, it's harder to follow and it's less interesting. But then by the time we get to episode three, we're firing on all cylinders and I'm really enjoying the story. So I think that 
I prefer a lot of big finish productions where they've just where they just do hour long stories mm. because if it's an hour long story, they tend to get right into it and yeah. they they don't do all this atmospheric introduction stuff to start with. There's also a, a fairly large cast and a in in fact the actors a big one yeah yeah they play a lot of several different roles many of them, but there's also a lot of a lot of threads, a lot of plot threads, and again, like you say, when there's no visual to help you man, maneuver through that, it can become confusing to just be trying to be listening and keep track of things. Yeah, without seeing. So yeah. especially when it's like, okay, so which character with a dodgy New York accent is this one? <laughs> right, I, I, it's right. not easy to tell them apart by their voices. Yes, especially yeah, especially the minor ones like Ellis and Mouse, and you know the the various mobsters and. You have Bix Byro, who is some kind of radio executive, but I'm not sure wh- why. That was the other thing is I'm not sure why, what his role was. He was being used to do something. He was being blackmailed into broadcasting something during the War of the Worlds, but I'm not sure why. <laughs> I mm-hmm. never could figure that out for the Nazi sympathizer. Like I, I, I think that his principal purpose is to is to have a have a cute trait name, which right. they even hang a lantern on. So here in America, the most famous type of rolling ball ink pen is a Bic, mm-hmm. and in England they call those biros. So ah. Bic's biro is the doctor even hangs a lantern on it when he says, "I assume that's his pen name." <laughs> right, <laughs> that is clever. <laughs> yeah, I mean he doesn't play a huge role in this. It, it, yeah, and uh, he gets shot, and so he's cannon fodder for the plot. Right, right. As is, uh, I think uh, the 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 young man who was being held hostage to to get him to do he dies too, right? Jimmy Jimmy mm-hmm. Winkler, um, something like that. that yep. Episode one and two are a blur, <laughs> right? So we have this Glory B who hires the doctor to find her uncle, the missing atomic scientist. We have Cosmo Divine, who's a somewhat flamboyant Nazi sympathizer. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. <laughs> You can read into that what you will, folks. Uh, and I mean, he's got a, what is it, like a a li- lilac, lilac suit that he wears and is often talking about. Yes, yes. So it, it right. It, it's it's so let's be a little uh, more forthcoming on that. Mm-hmm. So the, so um, Cosmo Divine is portrayed as flamboyantly homosexual. Yes. I mean, they'd never bring sex into it. They never mentioned that. Mm-hmm. But. He's portrayed as a flamboyantly homosexual man, and he's a villain. He's a Nazi sympathizer. Now, what I find um, interesting about this is, well, Mark Gaddis happens to be gay, Mm -hmm. and here he's given us a character that, you know, in some ways he would identify with, who he nevertheless makes a villain. And... You know, I whether you like the presence of such a character or not, I find that respectable, Mm -hmm. that an author is willing to take a group that he's a member of and por- and and portray characters in that group as having flaws and even being a villain. You know, it 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 would be like if I was writing stories and every catholic I write is perfect. Right. You know, or every southerner I write is perfect or every heterosexual is perfect or every science fiction fan is perfect. That would be a kind of, of inauthentic writing. 
And Mark Gatiss is willing to do a more authentic form of writing where he introduces a character and even though he shares attributes of that character, he's willing to let the character have flaws and willing to let the character be bad. Mm-hmm. And and that is something you don't see in a lot of the woke writing that we get today, right. where every so-called representational character has to be perfect and a victim and never, under any circumstances, a villain. Right, right. Yeah. In fact, Mark Gatiss, in his acting especially, often plays, I think he likes to be the bad guy. Like, I think he... Yeah. Mycroft is not in in Sherlock. He's not exactly a bad guy, but he's not a really a good guy either. Like he he's sort of a gray tending toward dark <laughs> character. He's uh, fundamentally on the side of the angels, but he's yeah. not the brightest angel in right. terms of holiness. Yeah, especially in the, in the Cumberbatch uh, uh, version of it is, is the one I'm thinking of, where he played Mycroft. Um, right. No. Yeah. In in the stories, yeah. he's much more on the side of good. He's just mm-hmm. lazy. Right. Right. Uh, and then I think he's played villains in Doctor Who when he's done on screen in Doctor Who. So I, I but I, I have to go back and research that. But it is a good point. It is very different. It's 2003 and different sensibilities ruled at the time, I think. So the Don, the, the Mafia Don, very, very stereotypical Depression era mobsters, sort of almost out of uh, the Godfather. He's got. Professor Stepashin, who is Glory B's Russian uncle, quote unquote, um, who is, like you said, creating alien tech from the, from the, so he's using the alien tech to create things which Cheney wants to sell to this CIA, let's just say <laughs> CIA, as a patriotic m- maneuver against the coming Nazi threat, is I think is the way he, he looks at it. But it's mm-hmm. sort of a patriotic commercialism. He's, you know, the the military-industrial complex uh, in the criminal side or something. Yeah, and that's a fairly, that's actually a trope that shows up in other uh, media where you have patriotic gangsters mm-hmm. in in having to serve the interests of the government in wartime settings in World War II. My favorite example of that is Hitler Dead or Alive, where mm-hmm. you have a group of, you have a bounty put on Hitler's head. This is a like 1941 propaganda film and you have a bounty put on Hitler's head. So it's like a million dollars, Hitler dead or alive. And these mobsters take up the offer, not because they're patriots, just because they want the money. Right. But by the end of the movie, after they've encountered Nazis and seen what Nazis do, they really become self-sacrificing patriots. Mm. Isn't there a a real world, um, I don't know if it's historical or just people uh, theorize, that the mob was helping with the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba because they were anti-communist, anti-Castro? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but I haven't researched. It's been a while since I've since I would have read about that, so I don't okay. know. I mean, there's there, well, uh, there certainly so there certainly was a mob interest in liberating Cuba because yeah. they had been running casinos in Havana and things like that, and and they wanted their territory back. Mm. And so my memory is that yeah, there 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 is reported to be mob involvement in that. Okay, I was wondering if I was just remembering a part a plot but, a line from The Godfather Two. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's not it's not like they had mob soldiers participating in the Bay of Pigs invasion itself. Yeah. Uh, like their contacts or something down there, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I remember that. So uh, the and and I like this. The mob has a secret base 
inside the Brooklyn Bridge, which <laughs> is kind of <laughs> not really possible, I don't think. But sure, what's whatever. It's a it's a it's a Doctor Who. So yeah, let's put a secret mob base inside the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, now the uh, yeah, so the later Plackers, which is a very fun name, I kind of think for an alien species, mm-hmm. and uh, they sounds sounds vaguely German and also dental. <laughs> That's right. We are later plackers. And, uh, we have ways of cleaning your teeth. <laughs> yes. With ve- very big bat-like creatures. And mm-hmm. uh, talk about bad accents. So um, they've sent their follow-on mission because they've lost contact with their original mission that's gone to uh, set up a base by, by breeding new uh, you know, young later plackers there. They didn't expect to find higher life forms on Earth. So they're not like this all-knowing alien species. They kind of showed up and thought it might be a place that they could colonize, but they didn't expect to find humans here, I think. No, they uh, they also, I like how at one point they're marveling at the Brooklyn Bridge because they haven't ever seen a bridge before. Because they're they're bats, they're yes. flighted creatures. They don't need bridges, right? And so they're they're marveling at it, and they do hang a lantern on it at one point where they talk about how they have advanced tech, but they're really not that bright. So we have these two later Placker characters, and I enjoyed the characters once they once these two uh, show up. I found them to be very entertaining. It took a couple of minutes because one of them is like determined to destroy things. He just wants to destroy things. And the other is like, no, we need to conserve things. And so you have this constant tension between these two sort of comic characters about do we destroy this or do we conserve this? But they are a lot of fun. At one point, they meet Charlie and they, and oh, they, 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 um, they refer to humans as hairless things. <laughs> and, and they will, they will, ref- so they'll say, you hairless thing, what is your name? And and Charlie is very nervous, and she says, Charlie, ch Charlie, are you an overlord of this place? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they they have um, they have they refer to Charlie as ch Charlie, <laughs> and they refer to n- New York, and <laughs> right. And uh, at one point, uh, one of the mobsters term, turns to uh, Cosmo Divine once he realizes he's a Nazi sim- sympathizer. And says, "You're scum divine," and and uh, Cosmo Divine says, "That's my name." <laughs> and <laughs> our, and and then the later placker says, "You're proposing an alliance, scum divine." <laughs> <laughs> and and throughout the rest of the episode, they refer to him as scum divine, as if that's his name. Scum Divine spoke the truth. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to object at one point, but then realizes the futility of it. It's like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Divine, so Cosmo is, is at first he's working for a, uh, a, a Nazi fifth column invasion of America. He's like, yeah, the, oh, and, and he, 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 he gets, he, he at one point says, I'm not sure what the other four columns are doing. <laughs> and and most people, if they know the phrase fifth column, so that means a group of infiltrator like mm-hmm. saboteurs who are going to interf- subvert a country from within. So here's what the other four columns are. It, this phrase fifth column comes from the Spanish Civil War, and supposedly, this may be a legend, but supposedly in 1936, Generalissimo, Generalissimo Franco of Spain allegedly claimed that there were four nationalist columns approaching Madrid 
and a fifth column was waiting to attack from the inside. Hmm. So that's why the fifth column are are uh, people doing subversion from the inside. The other four columns were ones that were approaching Madrid. Oh. Uh, by the way, we should inform the audience, Francisco Franco is still dead. Yes. <laughs> Which is a joke from Saturday Night And that's your weekend update. <laughs> um, and all, that doesn't make the reference anachronistic, but makes it difficult to, I mean, maybe it was in the news or something. Just but, two years later. Yeah. yeah. Also, oh, one other thing I really like about the um, the later placard, when they show up and they're trying to pitch their protection racket deal, mm-hmm. they pitch it in a in a way I really like. Um, they're talking to these humans. They're not expecting them to be advanced. So they, they're talking about a ship, a star, fall from the sky, filled with treasure. We give you some if you help us find it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that turnaround. Like, like humans usually the ones who, who see uh, other species as lesser and thus talk to them like in baby talk. Uh, so, yeah, I like that that bit. It is fun that they that they they're proposing a protection racket to the mobsters. Like this is the because yeah. you know, that's what it's a mob thing to do. So these are essentially outer space mobsters talking to uh, uh, Earth mobsters, which is kind of fun. And the later placards, when you talk about like the destruction versus conservation thing, they propose it as like it's their philosophy, like the the joint second principle of destruction and conservation. In between them is the middle way of wisdom or something. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It seemed kind of. I think Gatiss was was trying to sound very uh, uh, erudite, but it, <laughs> it didn't go anywhere. So I don't know that that's all, all that important. But it made it the, sound like that there was the later placards had this culture, uh, yeah, cultural well, outlook. He may be borrowing from the Ferengi rules of acquisition or something, because they eventually yeah. reveal what the first principle is. And the first principle, I forget exactly how they phrased it, but it was basically like the first rule of acquisition. Once you have their money, you never give it back. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, and so we mentioned that uh, Cosmo was originally going to let this uh, Nazi fifth column infiltrate and set them up in in the U.S. before the war, but he kind of sees where the wind is blowing with these advanced aliens and says that's a much better uh, ship to get to get you know tie my uh, fate to, and switches and essentially does I for one welcome our newly arrived alien overlords (laughs) uh, thing. Just let me rule North America. Right, right. He doesn't want much, just North America. Although he also has alluded to wanting to rule the world, so he may have he, <laughs> North America may be a negotiating point, right? It may be a, a first step on the the ladder. Uh, so the doctor comes up with the idea of using Orson Welles' War of the World broadcast to convince the later placards that someone else has already invaded uh, the Ice Warriors. Maybe, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, that doesn't work out well because. They the later placards figure out that it's just a broadcast. Yeah, and the way they do that is because they make a mistake at the studio and stop, and they forget to turn off the broadcast switch. They forget mm. to pot everyone down, and right. as a result, when they start talking about how do you think that went, it becomes obvious to the later placards that it was staged for their benefit. Right, and that's but, when Stepashin gets the idea to stop them with the atomic bomb. Yeah, um, and people have to, in this story have too much knowledge of atomic bombs for 1938. Um, yes, there were still a bunch of problems that needed to be solved. That it, there's there's too much knowledge of that, but you know it's a fantasy, right? 
Well, the other thing is that apparently Don Chaney had a 1929 Lamborghini once owned by Al Capone, which is very tricky because since Lamborghini didn't exist till 1963, but sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, and that's where it ends is with uh, the bomb going off, the later placards being killed in orbit, uh, Cosmo and Sebastian both dying, thus preserving the timeline of the atomic bomb being invented uh, being by the by Americans uh, in 1945. Yeah. And then uh, that's where we end, where the Doctor and Charlie get back into the TARDIS and leave, leaving uh, Don Chaney uh, staring agape at the TARDIS dematerializing and uh, wondering where that alien tech comes from and how can he get some of that for himself. <laughs> so, uh, and that was it. So what, do you, what did you think of this episode or any other notes on this one that I missed? Well, early on, uh, when Charlie and the Doctor are first arriving, they uh, are talking about interfering in history. Mm-hmm. And the doctor alludes to a situation back in the Middle Ages where you had an amoral Time Lord interfering with history and helping certain parties, you know, who had had conflict with England. And he's referring to the meddling monk and the first doctor serial, the Time Meddler. Mm. So there's a nice little reference there. Don Chaney, played by Simon Pegg, gets a really a, a line that I really liked where the doctor is trying to be ambiguous about whose side he's on. And the doc- and so the doctor is like, well, I'm not really on anybody's side. And Simon Pegg says, never sit on fences, my friend. It makes your eyes water. <laughs> like, doesn't quite make sense, but I yeah. like that. I like the integration of real historical people in this, like Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. And the voice actor they have doing Orson Welles, he's not perfect, but he's pretty good. Mm. He also reads the uh, the opening narration from the War of the Worlds broadcast, and I couldn't help comparing it to the actual opening narration, because I've heard that, you know, multiple times before, but I've heard it recently because we used it at uh, the beginning of our Life on Mars episode, or pair of episodes on Mysterious World. Right. And so I had Orson, the real Orson Welles' voice doing that. And I'm going, no, 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 no. Your intonation is slight, is, your delivery is too fast and your intonation is slightly off. But, <laughs> but it was still quite good. One thing that I didn't uh, appreciate is the actor who plays Orson Welles mispronounces his own name. Instead of saying Orson, he keeps saying Orson. Right. It's like, no, that is an S, not a Z sound. It's Orson Wells, not Orson Wells. Right. And so I I thought they could have improved that. I did like, also, they, they mentioned, you know, normally, uh, well, these days on Doctor Who and New Who, they will, like, have the BBC referred to. But frequently, you know, they don't have real broadcasters and real newspapers and things like that. They'll make up something or leave it vague. But here, because Orson Welles was broadcasting the Mercury Radio Theater from CBS in New York, they're like, okay, taxi driver, take us to CBS mm-hmm. and bring this TARDIS to CBS. And and I liked that. Particularly, it may have more resonance as for me as an American because CBS is a real thing that I grew up with. Yep. And then the Doctor, of course, as usual, is a fan of the historical figure he meets. And he does, at the very end, he, he tells, oh, like, he, he, when he meets Orson Welles, he says, oh, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I've seen all your films. 
And since this is 1938, Orson Welles says, I haven't made any films. I said, oh, you will, you will. And of course, he's, he's most famous for Citizen Kane, which came out in 1941, which was a revolutionary film and is often voted one of the best films ever made. Hmm. But then at the end of, as, as he's about to leave, the doctor tells Orson Welles, don't let them cut Ambersons. And then he backs off and says, oh, I mustn't interfere. Well, okay, what he's referring to is The Magnificent Ambersons, which was Orson Welles' next film after Citizen Kane. It came out in 1942. And during the production of it, Orson was working on several different, on another project for, because it was, the, the war was on now, and there was a let's get Hollywood to help out with the war effort thing going on. And so he was helping out. He was working on a project as part of the good neighbor policy uh, to ingratiate ourselves to South American allies. And while he was doing that, the studio exercised a clause that in his contract for the Magnificent Ambersons that gave them the right to re-edit the film because it was it was really long and they had showed it to a test audience and the test audience response was not as positive as they wanted. And even Orson Welles agreed this film needs to be cut down, and he made notes of where he wanted it cut, but he's like down in South America doing this good neighbor thing, and they're ignoring his notes and making the cuts they want and changing the end of the film. And and unfortunately, we have his notes, but the footage has been lost. And despite the cuts that the studio made, the Magnificent Ambersons, it's the story of a family living in an age of transition as the automobile is beginning to change society. Mm-hmm. And it shows the social disruption, you know, the technological disruption that the automobile is causing. But despite the cuts the studio made, The Magnificent Ambersons is still considered one of the best films ever made. Hmm. And, but since. Nobody got to see the uncut version except that test audience. That would suggest maybe the doctor was in the test audience and preferred <laughs> the original to the cut version. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's funny. That is good. I, li- I like those little those little side things they throw in there with the doctor that you kind of have to know what he's talking about to get. So nice. Very nice. Excellent. So I think that about does it for our discussion of uh, Invaders from Mars. Uh, We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Mark R., Bo H., Rochelle K., Jason H., and Eric H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So we'd love to hear what you think of Invaders from Mars, this Eighth Doctor story. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com, or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Eleventh Doctor story, The Name of the Doctor. And it will be our last Eleventh Doctor story, since we already talked about the night and day of the Doctor uh, stories when we did our run through all the regenerations. Time and of the Doctor and Day the, of the Doctor. Yes. Oh, right. There's still Time of the Doctor to do, don't? Isn't there? Is that the? Uh, is that the regeneration? I, now they've got all these similarly named ones at the end. 
But I well, think we've done... N- Night of the Doctor is the regeneration of Paul McGann's eighth Doctor, who we okay, talked that's... about today. Yeah. Then Day of the Doctor and Time of the Doctor are, I believe, Day of the Doctor is the 50th anniversary where we introduce the War Doctor, and yep. then Time of the Doctor is when Matt Smith regenerates, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay, okay. So I was right that Name of the Doctor will be the last 11th Doctor story we'll be talking about. But we have decided to go back to our beginning, as uh, just like the Doctor sometimes does, and we're going to be discussing the 12th Doctor again all these years later, seven plus years since we first talked about the 12th Doctor, and a lot of Doctor Who has passed through this podcast, so we'll, it'll be and fun. And we to- have a new cast of characters here on uh, Secrets of Doctor Who and yeah, and our, our own way of approaching things. Yeah, so it's going to be a lot of fun to revisit the 12th Doctor and, and, and discuss those. So uh, we've got a lot of fun coming up in 2022 with that. So until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm... Or, I'm sorry, later, Placker. Thanks, <laughs> Thing. <laughs> Hairless Thing. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, what's that ticking noise? 